Across the margin. Across the margin. Podcast. Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the magazine, and deeper into the stories. I am your host, Michael Shields, and usually this is the point where I introduce my co-host, Chris Thompson, but uh, Chris could not join us. We will um, we'll get him back for the next one, of course, And uh, but we do have a very special podcast for you today, as recently I had the unique pleasure to talk to Ben Selko the writer, producer, and director of Buried Above Ground, a documentary that explores with acumen and delicacy the mental health condition that so many people deal with that is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Ben is a very talented filmmaker. He's an award-winning New York-based filmmaker whose work has been exhibited on HBO, CNN, and the Sundance Channel. His varied credits include Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, Series such as Welcome to Fairfax and Get to Work, the documentaries Prayer for a Perfect Season, Rising, Rebuilding Ground Zero, The Carrier, and Summer in the Cage, which won the 2009 Mental Health America Media Award. Ben was also a mental health journalism fellow at the Carter Center, which is an institute founded by former President Jimmy Carter and his wife, activist Rosalind Carter. Ben is a socially conscious filmmaker who, through all these experiences and after his work on Buried Above Ground, is the ideal person to talk to to come to better understand PTSD. Buried Above Ground took over six years to make, and over that time, Ben amassed a depth of knowledge about this condition that so many people are facing daily. The statistics are astounding. 450 million people, or 8% of the population of the world, develop PTSD at some point in their life. And PTSD isn't limited to those who have taken part in combat, and Buried Above Ground brings this this to light. Buried Above Ground is a revelatory and important film. It contributes to reshaping the way our society thinks about mental health issues and helps dispel the myths and misconceptions about PTSD. It is set to air June 28th at 8 p.m. on Public Television's World Cinema, so uh, go ahead and mark your calendar on that one. Um, it's fantastic. I, agree. I couldn't recommend this, this documentary more. It, it truly affected me deeply. And uh, I believe that will be the case with you. And, uh, and I also uh, I have no doubt you enjoy this interview with Ben. It's, it's, it's a good one. So enjoy. I have with me today Ben Selko, um, who is the director, producer, and writer of Buried Above Ground a film that follows three people attempting to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Ben. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate you making the time. Um, So this film, your film, is the tagline, hauntingly reads, 
what if the worst thing that ever happened to you felt like it was still happening? Which, that's, that's a pretty intense thought to think about. And as I said, it follows three people trying to recover from PTSD. Uh, one is Louis, an Iraq war veteran. Another is Aranita. Uh, it's Luis. Okay. And Arandina. Okay, Arandina. Arandina, yep. yep. And the third is Ashley, yep. and she's uh, an evacuee from Hurricane Katrina. And Buried Above Ground explores the subject's lives for six years and their personal battles uncovered illuminated global health condition that is misunderstood, underreported, and often left untreated. So what, what stands out to me right away there is the six years thing. This must have been um, a pretty intense experience and a, and a labor of love for you. I, I, I'm real curious. What, what motivated you? What, what, what got this started for you? All those are apt descriptions of the process. Um, I became interested in post-traumatic stress disorder um, in 2008. I had uh, just finished another documentary on another mental health, health condition uh, called bipolar disorder, and that film was called A Summer in the Cage. And as I was touring with that film, doing uh, community screenings, pairing with mental health advocacy groups nationally, um, it also coincided with where we were in the Iraq War and in, the, in our in our engagements in Afghanistan as well. And uh, you know, after multiple deployments, soldiers starting to come home, and so the Veterans Administration, uh, our government, Department of Defense, State Department, all of you know the kind of governmental institutions starting to really grapple with the consequences of multiple deployments and combat um, as manifested through post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in their veteran population uh, and how to, to how to manage it just as a psychiatric condition but also the the, the huge numbers that were coming back yeah there was, it was like an over it was a moment in time where there was an overwhelming number that, that they had to address and so it was it um, remains an overwhelming remains, you know, in, yes. ter- in terms of uh, you know access to treatment the yeah. the the time and efficacy in which the VA processes uh, disability claims, uh, how they award their um, those claims, prescribe medication—you know—it's still yeah. an ongoing um, thing that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So I became interested in as part of this national conversation around PTSD uh, in veterans, and I was—you know—had been working since 2000 on a film about mental health conditions. So I, you know, I was sensitive to that uh, generally. Um, as I started to investigate PTSD further. Uh, I realized that you know, you know, we all associate with war and soldiers and something that's been around forever. And yeah, but that's not only it's just that's not the only that's not the only origin of the issue. Yeah, precisely. I, I read a book called Trauma and Recovery, um, which was written by a psychiatrist uh, and noted author and lecturer and uh, named Judith Herman, and it really came out of the, the feminist movement of the '70s, looking at domestic violence and child abuse and really understanding the wait a minute. There's this whole category of trauma survivors with uh, lingering effects in, yeah. as manifested in post-traumatic stress disorder um, that there is no public record for. You know, you yeah. go to war, we watch CNN, the validation of the traumatic event is there with uh, domestic not, violence yeah. and domestic violence and child abuse. It's Nobody he, thinks about the term PTSD linked with those. It's, it's I, I didn't. Yeah, it's emerging. You know, yeah, you don't. You totally. think, okay, well, and also like, you know, you don't, there's no witness to it. So yeah. it's he said, she said, and it's, you know, and there's a paradynamic mm-hmm. in this thing. You know, there's, you know, overwhelmingly women are the subject of domestic violence and, yeah. and children. Again, their voices are drowned, they're silenced. Yeah. And so as I started to understand PTSD as a, in a broader context, I realized, wait a minute, there's a huge population with no voice to this. Yeah. Um, I want to look at that. And then as I continued to research PTSD, I found that, oh, wait a minute, uh, you get it from first responders get it, police officers get it, uh, firemen, firewomen get it, uh, people who have witnessed a traumatic event in a civilian context, yeah. uh, car accidents, 
natural disasters. So all of a sudden, there's yes. all these other categories going on. I said, wait a minute. Okay, let me. How do I broaden this storytelling yeah. um, and look at these other communities where we don't necessarily associate PTSD with? And um, and so then became the process of casting people to fulfill that role. Um, and so I wanted to you know use the the story of war as the main you know, main entry point to understanding PTSD and, and war as a metaphor for trauma and look at other traumatic instances in America yeah. and see what these other populations what it would look like. where the film was so successful in that it did show multiple ways in which it affects. I mean, I never thought of natural disasters. And then, you know, you show, showed the Hurricane Katrina and how it affects people afterwards. I was blown away by that, so... I mean, yeah. if you compare, you know, what New Orleans looked like, and that was, you know, it was an analogy. It's a war that zone. Yeah, it looked like a war zone. Absolutely. You know, from the helicopters in the sky to the burning fires to the, you know, to bodies and smells in the yeah. streets, um, the, it, you know, it, it looked like that. Yeah. And again, it's not just Katrina. It was, you know, you know, one of the largest natural catastrophes we've had or man-made sure. catastrophes if you want to look both. at it. Yeah. But if you think about the incidents of tornadoes, mm-hmm. you know, heavy storms and, that, you know, fires, you know, those are things that happen – you know, seasonally in our country all the time, and those are communities that where mental health is not part of the, necessarily a part of the initial triage. I think yeah. that's changing, but you know, you, again, you don't you associate oh, someone's house got blown away, they got they got shelter yeah, to worry they're, about. They're basically but, worrying about the basic necessities at that point, not the lingering effects. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I was blown away that it, one of the numbers that shows up early is that 450 million people are you know, in their lifetime will be struggling with this. And, and you pointed out that it's 8% of the world population. Did uh, did this whole thing change your worldview of how, you know, how many people are suffering out there? And did, I mean, do you look at things I, differently? I, I think about it a lot. I think about when we look at, you know, the international question, you know, again, you know, where, you know, you do a film like this and you, you want to think about the issues it raises, but then you want to think forward, okay, what is it, what is it projecting into and what, what do we need to, you know, what is the cautionary tale, you know? Yeah. And so I think about, you um, a number of things internationally. Who are the most vulnerable populations internationally? Women and children, right? Yeah. Okay, so what's happening in the world? You've got global conflict, so we know war is going to create trauma. But then we think about like climate change and the number of populations, the density of populations along uh, waterways, uh, and we're having rising coastlines. So, and those are generally poor people, and that's going to, you know, so there's the impact of, you know, perhaps a tsunami. But then there's also just the issue of displacement or forced displacement, yeah. forced migration. And yeah, I mean, people who don't have access to water, I mean, some of that has already begun, don't have access to water, are moving around forward. And I mean, the war over water in a lot of ways has started. And then there's the trauma associated with everyone having to deal with that. Absolutely. It's yeah. so intense. No, you just saw the headline in the New York Times, you know, uh, a couple of days ago, just talking about, you know, people having to use transactional sex to survive as displaced like people that, in, yeah. the, in the Syrian uh, refugee crisis. And so, you know, that's, that's just one instance where trauma is incurred, but you're in, in, in camps without supervision, children moving from here to there. Um, and mental health is not a part of, for the most part, unless an NGO goes in, mental yeah. health is not, again, the basic necessities are addressed, food, water, shelter. Yeah. But mental health, if not kind of intervened at an early, early stage, Produces those lingering effects. The lingering effects produce behavioral changes that, you know, create all kinds of things from substance abuse to depression, anxiety, all of the yeah. things that uh, the negative consequences and behavioral health that, that are associated with that comes arise. And so I look at like the international question really, you know, as a, as a place to look in the future. How do we look at um, how we intervene uh, international crises, yeah. you know, and climate change being a big part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, just we did just mention the, the the multiple angles you took at. I'm I'm just curious as a filmmaker, how did you come upon these subjects? How did you 
isolate them a little behind the scenes I'm looking for. Uh, sure, of course. Yeah. No, the casting process, the casting couch. Well, the casting couch looks a little different in documentaries. Sure. Um, and for me, you know, I, I really benefited. Like I said, my previous film was on uh, mental health. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a six-year study of someone with bipolar disorder. Um, and it gained a lot of credibility, you know, in the documentary world. It was, you know, it was on Sundance Channel, but also within the mental health community. I think that, you know, some of the national advocacy groups really embraced it and felt like it was a really uh, poignant, accurate, um, and sympathetic telling of yeah. a story. So I, I, I've been entrusted with um, telling vulnerable stories, especially around mental health. So when I was looking for, you know, people to cast in the film, I was in touch with various therapists that I had met along the way. Um, and put it out there that I was looking to meet trauma survivors, specifically, specifically with PTSD, to do a new film. Um, and so a number of therapists suggested people that they thought were maybe were ready in their kind of therapeutic arc uh, to talk. To discuss it, yeah. That they had reached some level of stabilization mm-hmm. in their personal life, uh, had a desire to talk about it, because mm-hmm. that's not uncommon that, especially with trauma... They would, they would draw would be withdraw, but then once you reach some level of stabilization is in a way to make sense of what has happened to you, um, advocacy becomes a route or oh, part sure. of something sure. they want yeah, to do. Yeah, you see that in your film as well. Yeah. You know, that like, okay, what, you know, I want to, I don't, A, you don't want anyone else to suffer the way I did. Yeah. Uh, B, how do I make, how do I justify this life experience? It was so horrific. Yeah. How do I, how do I make some good come of it? Mm-hmm. And so advocacy often becomes yeah, a route. to something positive. Yeah. Totally. So, so. And, you know, so that in part, this was not a straight advocacy film, but people were willing to talk. People were willing to talk to me because I had a track record dealing with you know vulnerable populations around mental health. Um, and then it was up to me to kind of earn the trust, and that became the really the biggest challenge is because the you know the biggest casualty in PTSD is trust. You, yeah. you lose trust yeah. in yourself, institutions, people, friends, family, um, and so that fissure and trust, you know, forces you to isolate. So re- restoring that trust in a, in a brief period and then extending it beyond to say, Hey, can I follow you in your personal yeah. life? Can I come into your therapy session? Can I ask you questions? Can I ask These you about the past? Intimate, very intimate, you know, yeah, experiences. Can you, yeah. Imagine if I sat here and asked you like, Mike, I want you to tell me about your childhood. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's, that's a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. So. And then it's going to be broadcast out there too. It's something you, you know you need to make sure the person's going to be presenting you in, in this positive light or the way you're hoping to see him. Um, yeah, Luis, uh, he uh, he did say just like you're saying. He did, at one point, you know, being in Iraq, literally he could trust no one. And to go back to your tagline, imagine taking that home where literally you can trust no one. And you know, he was talking about being in a room with with. Uh, you know, Iraqis, whether it's families, and he smiled, he's, he's, he was like, smile, be nice, but, but always be ready uh, with a plan to kill everyone in the room, and this is, you know, he's coming home with this, and that's where he, it was pretty intense to, that, that you delved into um, his thinking, because he, he was a warrior, he was, he was strong, I mean, you could see him in the beginning of the film, he's talking about how proud he is, but then he became broken, and, and doesn't that make you feel this can just happen to anybody? Well, I mean, I think that's precisely right. I mean, I think that's well. First of all, I would say he's still a warrior. Yes, and he's, he's he, no, no. I know you. Do, I know you do. Yeah. But I'm saying that, like, yeah, yeah he's he, you know, warrior for 17 years in the U.S. Army. But you know, he's very much a warrior now, and, and arguably has to deal with a lot more pain, mental and physical, day to day. And his choice is to carry his mission forward, which is one of advocacy, awareness. Mm-hmm. It's a really selfless thing. Um, I mean, he's out there three or four times a week. You know reading his book, sharing his service dog and really promoting an idea of, 
of the recovery light uh, hope is all available uh, yeah. to someone uh, with a lot more obstacle to it. Um, you know, but to, you know, you know, he's, you're right. I mean, he's a warrior. So the idea in terms of, you know, using the film to battle the, you know, the effects of negative stigma around yeah. mental health is saying this dude, you know, you know, his, his nickname in the army was Captain America, you know, oh, he, yeah, yeah. When he was yeah. a le- sergeant, he was a lieutenant. So he's a platoon commander. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a guy that he's could a li- bad man. Be, lift, yeah. lift the most, but also like the most tactically prepared, strategically prepared. Sharp. He's a sharp, sharp man. Very, yeah. very smart, yeah. very prepared, physically fit, mm-hmm. um, ethical beyond belief, uh, discipline beyond belief. And so all of these things say, okay, so if literally Captain America can be broken by psychologically by this war, yeah. Then okay, maybe 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 I can go talk to someone because well I don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed or yeah. or feel like I'm I'm weak or you know all those negative terms that come around from negative stigma you know someone like Luis is someone who says like well no I can go I need help I need yeah. to go get help um, yeah, it's but empowering. You, it's empowering yeah. and then you also understand that like you know you also don't have to settle you know you don't have to be resigned to victimhood of of, of patient of victim of the pathology of a psychiatric condition you can find your way out of it I mean you need help resources and people but it's possible it's totally possible it's completely possible yeah um he mentioned that when he he returned I think this was from his first tour because he did multiple tours two tours two tours uh that he didn't he didn't even have an outlet for talking to a therapist he was he was taking out on his family for not being able to help which isn't their neither their fault but uh this is this is you know kind of one of the points of your films, I, I assume something you probably came upon often is the lack of help and options of those with PTSD. Well, in, you know, and obviously I think the army's culture, the military culture is shifting. So there's more, there's more awareness, yeah. more interventions available, but there's still a stigma that prevails of, of strength and weakness um, on one level. On the other hand, the perception that you're going to hurt your, your military career if you know, there's something in your file about, uh, se- you know, seeking help for depression, oh, anxiety. Oh, is that something that is a roadblock uh, for them to get help? Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I've not thought about Yeah, if, if, if a guy's a career guy, or whether he's an enlisted person or a commissioned officer, you know, you, you know, people talk and, you're, you, you know, it's a subjective thing to get elevated in rank. And yeah. so, well, is that guy carrying something, you know? Yeah. Like, and so that becomes a real concern for guys so and, and guys and women, yeah, absolutely, so absolutely, goodness. yeah. You know, you don't want to be someone a complainer. You don't want to be mm-hmm. perceived as weak. Someone who is unstable, quote unquote. Yeah. So um, the professional um, elevation uh, is a, definitely a consideration, along with the gen, you know the kind of general code of a warrior who is strong yeah. is not you, weak. So you just deal with it. You just you deal know, with it. Yeah. So I think there are the there's more resources that exist in terms of you know access to psychologists. There's a better culture around it, but. Um, it's you know it's not perfect for sure. Absolutely, far from perfect. I mean, I think a lot of this money that's going into the war machine needs to be. I think Bernie was recently saying, if you think it's too expensive to take care of veterans, don't send them to war. I mean, this is it's part of the process. I mean, if, if these guys are going to go and these got these men and women are going to go into these situations, we got to be there on both ends. And uh, it's I mean. One of the stats that came up in the film is 22 vets a day commit suicide. That's so disturbing. And so this probably has motivated you. Not only is it, you know, you're obviously proud of the film and everything, but it's going to be motivating to get out there and help spread the word through this film. Yeah, this, yeah, this is not a faddish issue. This, yeah, you know, we're, we have a, you know, we have a military that's going to be engaged at all times. And we have a veteran population that is 
you know, it's not just, okay, well, the, you know, the, the, the last deployment that came around that came home, it's, you know, the entire Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, theater, you know, of, of, of veterans. There is, you know, still people who are enlisted who are dealing with these issues who are not out of the Army uh, or the other military branches. And then, there, of course, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, the Middle East veterans from the 90s. Yeah. There's all, all the Vietnam veterans yeah. that were... They weren't cared for properly when they came not, back. You know, you know, it wasn't, in the PTSD it wasn't didn't, even, even, it it didn't even exist as a term until 1980. 1980? Yeah. It was introduced to the, you know, the uh, yeah, DSM. So um, Everyone so, knew they were messed up. They just never identified it and started to... Identify. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's why you saw the rampant rates of alcoholism. And yeah. that 22 veterans a day that commit suicide... You know, I, I don't know what the breakdown is demographically, but I imagine a good portion of that is our Vietnam veterans. It's not just okay, the Iraq, Afghanistan. Yes. This is the, the survivors Korea. of all the war. So mm-hmm. that includes Korea, you know, the waning numbers of World War Two. Probably, yeah. I don't think there's almost no World War One veterans yeah, alive. But yeah. so, you know, that includes all veterans of all wars. Um, you know, but those are, you know, the World War Two and Korea and Vietnam veterans are a part of that population Absolutely. that are completely underserved. Yeah. Um, you know, and at this point, there at least now we're making some sort of progress towards towards identifying and, and, and making help. So that's encouraging. Yeah, I was um, I was I'd like to see how involved uh, Senator um, Al Franken was in the whole thing. And and uh, for those who haven't seen the film, it's um, there is uh, a dog plays a big part of it. His name's Tuesday, who helps um, Luis uh, deal with his things. He's given a dog and. Um, Al Franken was involved with the uh, Service Dogs for Veteran Act, which was just, uh, I was very happy to see that. Were you surprised? I was surprised on how um, you, you were listing and, and pointing out all the benefits of, of a dog for PTSD. That was pretty remarkable. It's incredible. Um, it's funny. I was just on the phone today with Lou Picard, who runs ECAD, which is the organization, the nonprofit that trains the dogs, uh, service dogs, okay. and the dog the, and with whom uh, Louise trained with. I was on the phone with her today. Um, you know, she's you know a huge dog person, but she you know she understands better than anyone the the benefits, literally the life saving benefits of a service dog yeah. for um, for veterans or for anyone with a traumatic in, you know traumatic brain injury yeah. or a traumatic emotional injury. Um, and so. I'm not surprised. I mean, I had a dog as a kid, and so I didn't, you know, it was, you know, that, you know, that bond is strong, and you know how comforting that is, just in, you know, your heart, you know, you don't even think about it in, you know, in, you know, kind of physiological terms, but you know your heart rate goes down, you know you chill when you have your dog, and then, but, you know, I spent a lot of time with the reason. I would cuddle my dog on the ground, and just, you know, I mean, it's very cathartic. Now, add add that if a dog has, is trained to be able to be in tune with your heart rate, to be in tune with your sweating. That's what kind of blew my mind when they were saying that they could almost sense their heart rate going up and and, and prevent a panic attack, or, you know, you're about to have a a crippling nightmare, and and then they could sense that and come, I mean... The level kind of blew my mind a little bit. Not that I was in tune with what a dog can provide, but that's pretty intense. It's really intense, and you know, just imagine how comforting it is if you know. I mean, like obviously, sleep hygiene is a huge thing for any for anyone's mental health. So if you come back, just sleep? sleep hygiene. Yeah. Meaning, meaning yeah. like you know, are you able to get you know six, seven, eight hours sure. sleep? Sleep with some regularity. You know, if you're yeah, sleeping on insomnia is a big part of. Many people's PTSD. Well, yeah, insomnia is a result of invasive thoughts, nightmares, yes. yeah. um, just a, a hypervigilance, you know, not trusting 
your environment, like you're 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 still in, in battle mode. Yeah. But if even if you're in a civilian context, so you know if you and I are sitting, you know, in the studio, and I hear something go outside, and I think I'm misinterpreting that as uh, a threat, yeah. I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to be up yeah. upright, aware, you know, like I was as a soldier. Yeah. Um, and so the dog it enables you to, you know, kind of pacify that hypervigilance, actually get some rest. And if you get that rest, that is. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a very common, and, basic thing of healing. And experience um, on a basic level some unconditional love, too. I mean, that's one thing that the dogs give. It's really remarkable. Yeah. And yeah, and what a foundation builder for rebuilding your other trust. relationships in your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, okay, I can trust this dog. This dog is dependable. Someone else might be able, I might be able to trust other Right, people. that existential notion exists in your life yeah. again. Let me extend that a step further to you know a parent, a sibling, a friend, a, a colleague, a you know, a platoon mate, like something. A gate, gateway drug to trust. That's a great um, way to put it. And yeah. uh, Luis, um, he wrote a book. Uh, it, it's and it's called "Until Tuesday: A Wounded Warrior and the Golden Retriever Who Saved Him," which I'm looking forward to reading. That must be pretty. It must have been, and, and you got to see some of it in the film. That must have been pretty intense to write. Not only is it cathartic, but as he was saying, reliving those experiences, trying to really draw them out of himself. That's intense. Super intense. And, and you know, and, and Luis is so fastidious and so exacting that I know he didn't shy away from re-examining those periods of his life. Yeah. And, you know, he retells the incidents of trauma and then the re-traumatization, you know, in terms of, you know, and, and, and I don't want to give away the book, but, sure. the, you know, the idea that, you know, you know, once you're deployed, you know, you have an obligation to your your platoon but at the same time he always felt an obligation to the Iraqis and he knew that the policy choices at the time were, were creating a massive refugee crisis like and he was stationed in Al-Anbar western western Iraq this is like the heart of where the ISIS battle mm-hmm. is happening now so he was seeing like the seeds of all yeah. of that this kind of policy again not observing tribal rhythms and cultures um kind of the, the vacuum that happens when it's sucked out and the corruption yeah. takes over. Um, and so he was seeing all this in the front, front lines and he was aware, you know, even though he was a, you know, an officer in the army that, you know, this is a humanitarian crisis, not just a veteran crisis that we're leaving behind. And, and so that, that, I think that really weighed on him as well. And so uh, he's someone that has a great deal of compassion, a great deal of empathy um, and is kind of multicultural way. And so, um, you know, leaving Iraq and choosing to leave the army was very, very difficult. He had to for his own like literal survival. Um, oh, he cho- he chose to leave. Yeah, he was honorably discharged. He he yeah. he he chose to leave the army. Um, he wasn't being, you know, he, I think he broke with it philosophically, but also they weren't supporting him in a way that was you know benefiting his you know his spiritual and, and kind of psychic structure. Um, and knew at this point in his life he could do more good on the outside, but being on the outside became very difficult. You lost an institution he knew since he was 17. You know, yeah. Now he's thrust into a civilian life with uh, none of the tethers. And, and, and civilian life doesn't work like the military. He's, worth, mm-hmm. he's used to clockwork, precision, you know, a chain of command, and you have to operate in the civilian world where you know, all those structures fall apart. It, it was very, very challenging. Yeah, that's, that's so intense. Um, to kind of circle towards Ashley in New Orleans, you spend a great, great amount of time in New Orleans during the filming? Uh, during and before. That was the reason, yeah. in part, um, I wanted to do a New Orleans story is that a very good friend of mine from college uh, was from New Orleans, and so she took us all back there for, for jazz fests, you know, for first music oh, yeah. festivals. Really fun stuff. We had great times. But, you know, I got a real sense of how important that city was to her uh, in a way that I, I didn't have an attachment like that to my any geography yeah. in my own life. Um, so 
when Katrina happened, uh, you know, she was living in New York, I was living in New York, and we went up to Columbia to see uh, Alan Toussaint sing yeah. and, and perform oh, after. So, so amazing. And you know, just the tears being shed is a lament for the destruction of the yeah. city. So I, I wanted very much to participate in a small way to kind of keep that story alive, to keep New Orleans on people's minds in the consciousness as it went forward. Um, so... And it coincided with, you know, the, the film I was developing, you know, later on, obviously, with, with Buried Above Ground to yeah. look at, you know, what does aftermath look like? So what is that planted the seed for, for where you went with Yeah, I mean, I, you, know, I, you know, how was I, you know, how could I help that situation? What, you know, knowing that, like, there's going to be a huge response, you know, to any, you know, tragedy or trauma, there's a huge response initially. And, you know, you know things fade, cameras go yeah. away, the tension, yeah. Yeah, exactly. tension shifts. So here, how, how could I contribute to that attention staying on there and so that this was yeah, a choice to do that, it that way. Yeah, one thing you were just alluding to that was pretty intense was not was not only Ashley dealing with her own personal struggle um, but the pain of the city. I mean, they, there is, like you just said, the, that attachment people have to that city and part of her broken heart and part of her fear and everything was that it would happen again to this place that she loved so much. So that's why it's, it's a fascinating thing to to see what happened down there. Yeah, it's a complicated town. To it. yeah, it's yeah, it's a complicated, complicated town because it's like the choice is to be there, fine, but there's a known quantity that like, you know, the levees aren't structurally sound. Yeah. We have climate change. You know, the the marshes are, are being destroyed by oil spill. You know, so all of the, there's no good reason to stay in New Orleans. Yeah. You know, like it's going to happen probably again. And yeah, she's, she's preparing herself for that. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, yeah. the weather witch. The weather witch, yeah. right? Her her box of preparedness, her, her survival kit, pretty survival much. Survival kit, pretty, to say the least. But you see the size of it, and the size of it lends to her heart, and her yeah. heart is community facing. She has enough food and supplies in there to not just take care of her, you know, her, you know, her and her family, but rather, you know, her neighbor, yeah. her neighbor, you know, whoever needs the help. She's preparing for to be that person who can help all those people. Ashley, she was. Uh, I mean, it was incredible to see how strong she was, and it was it was incredible to see how how strong all three of them were. I mean, that they, they were really fighting so hard to gain back control of their lives. And so that was something that really struck me in the film. That was real good. Can you say her name again? Um, just Aaron Dina. Aaron Dina. In her case, and a very complex case, that she was a domestic violence uh, situation, um, we spent some time with her son, too. And what was unique for me to see was to start to understand how PTSD can kind of trickle down through the family. Is that something you... Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that there's a generational component to PTSD. So there's, you know, uh, it's something where I think Erin Dina was the subject of child abuse from her father to start, but also witnessed her father being abusive towards her mother. Yeah, so so she, she she internalizes that perhaps, you know, I, I, would, I would hedge to say normalizes that, but... So, but that has an impact. And so what happens in her life, she becomes uh, involved with partners who become, you know, physically abusive and verbally abusive, yeah, psychologically multiple, abusive, multiple situations. Multiple yeah, situations. Yeah. And, and is it something that she's normalized? She's rationalized? Okay, this is what love looks like. Yeah. You know, a lot of things happened along those lines. Um, and so what does her son witness? Her son witnesses multiple, you know, uh, partners that are abusive towards his mother. Yeah. Um, so that becomes something that, he has to process, Even and that's before you, know, you like kind of mentioned how it was affecting him. That's just going through my mind. I mean, he walked in, the, his mother was about to get hit one time. He found her almost drowning in the tub. I'm like, I kept thinking this this could cause an issue like that, and then absolutely. you delve into it, and that's that's um, it's these things resonate. It's just, it's it's it is such a complex 
No, I think resonate is right. And it resonates on a lot of levels. It, kind of, it resonates, you know, psychologically, behaviorally, but even physically. Like imagine as a little boy or a girl witnessing this and the tension, the stress you're carrying in your body. You're yeah. literally taking on a physical component of that. And so, uh, you know, you know, the deleterious effects of that kind of physical stress on top of this kind of psychic and spiritual stress. It's, it's a huge negative impact on kids. No wonder kids, you know, from that experience or community have trouble in school. What are they yeah. thinking about? They're thinking about like, what yeah, happened last focus night? on these little, you know, how does math matter when at home mom's getting hurt or you're, yeah. you know, you're, or you have to, you're like, okay, when's the clock, when's the bell going to ring? I have to head home back to that environment, exactly. you know, and you have, and, or you haven't slept all night because you were hearing this or you're afraid, yeah. you know, daddy or mommy or somebody's or an uncle or somebody's coming into your room that night. Um, yeah. you know, again, the hypervigilance manifests in the kids and it becomes, uh, you know, a really, again, and they're like the most powerless, you know, there's lack of verbal uh, ways to express it, the lack that he said, she said, trust factor, the power issue. Um, and then if it's a, you know, if it's a community uh, in poverty, you know, what are the little resources? Is, you know, in an overcrowded school, is there a social worker who's willing to, you know, to focus on this focus that, find that kid with that issue, yeah. not like confuse uh, the acting out, the anger with some other special ed yeah. need or, you know, and miscasting the kid. And so, you know, but if you look, you know, if you dig into these kids' narratives, if you have the time and resources, you know, you'll find, you know, trauma sometimes, very often is at the core of it, but expressed in all these other Absolutely. things that get treated with disciplinary and things. And as you get older and older, that becomes juvie and jail as opposed to, you know, social work, therapy and other yeah, resources. Exactly. And really, you know, really, you know, I'm really biased against, uh, you know, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and just speaking of disadvantage, um, she had no health insurance. She couldn't afford therapy. This is, I mean, this is the lack of resources to deal with this uh, this problem. And, um, you know, not just for the veterans coming home, for people dealing with in everyday life. It, it's it, There's not enough. There's not enough. And, you know, and like, you know, the, the cynical thing is to say is, okay, well, you know, she, she earned this experience. She's making these choices and putting herself in the situation. Um, you know, and you talk about things like universal health care, not to get on a soapbox, but like, you know, preventative care, you know, if there's ways to intervene, or same with education, if there's yeah. ways to intervene early, uh, this person who is now out of the workforce for 15 years, uh, dependent on social services and ER visits, all of these things that are costing taxpayers money in a really, you know, kind of like, clinical way or you know cl- you know economically clinical way you could say you know you could save a lot of money by you know early intervention yeah. you know early intervention in education early intervention uh in social and mental health services uh you know disrupt these cycles and then obviously you get into a situation with substance abuse you know the compounded effect uh on on a on a community on yeah. an economy is you know is you know it, it's massive because yeah. you're 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 taking from the resources you're not contributing um you know, and you're also disrupting your family. Like you said, we, mm-hmm. we spoke about this generational, you know, resonance of, of trauma. You know, if you're not caretaking in your family, you know, what is the legacy of that? Is that kid going on to then participate in a negative way in, in society? So there's a lot of things to do, but, you know, those are long, long, long lead institutional reforms that don't sound so good in a, in a presidential year to yeah. talk, discuss, <laughs> and take on and see through. But, yeah. you know, those are the kind of systemic things that, you know, it's you just, hope awareness and, and public yeah. public will That's turns into political will. Powerful in that way. And I mean, but you're right. There's a, there's an incredible snowball effect, and in that if these things are addressed at a at a you know earlier point, it, it it doesn't have to go that way. In some ways, there's um there's a point in the film where there's there's a, a surprising relapse, um, and uh, and it kind of just made 
you realize how how someone who is fighting PTSD, it just this it's this pro- process. It's, it's a constant thing. It's, it it's a lifelong struggle. Am I right? You're always going to be. I, I, you know, I think you're pointing out a really good thing. Is it, it's, it's both a lifelong struggle, but manageable in way in ways that you know produce great outcomes. You know, yeah. your life changes. You know, you don't, you're not the same person you were, but you can find new fulfilling, perhaps even more fulfilling ways to live a happy life. Um, and I think you also point out the challenge in the filmmaking from a story point, but also you know the challenge for each of uh, the subjects in the film is that it's not this you know kind of graph you know, linear trajectory towards, uh, you know, recovery, that yeah. it's, it comes with dips and valleys, crests and troughs, uh, relapses, setbacks, and yeah, you kind of keep pushing forward out of, out of, uh, you know, out of it a little bit. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's right there. Right. It's, and then, yeah. And like the fragility of it. So having, yeah. you know, so think about the task of living life where you want to be looking forward at the same time, knowing that the, the edge falling off the edge is always a possibility. Yeah. And so, you know, it, you know, there's a vigilance you have to live your life with, and uh, but you always have to be on. You're always on task. On task, on point, and yeah, and that's uh, and that's hard. It's a hard way to have to live. Sometimes Absolutely. it's easier just to say, "Give your hands up." And say, I don't, don't want to fight we, anymore. We were talking about the, the student at school. You know, they can't focus on that. How do you focus on a lot of life tasks when you are focusing so much effort on on controlling this issue? It's well, not, I have one answer for you, and that's yeah. community. Community, right? You know, yeah. like, that's, you know, the, the kind of, the operative phrase we've used around the film is, and I've, you know, I've borrowed it, stolen it, whatever, from the journalist Sebastian Younger, who wrote The Perfect Storm, yeah. uh, directed the the documentary Restrepo, and he's, you know, he's a war journalist, yeah. and he's been all over the world with, uh, you know, embedded in Afghanistan, he's, you know, he's a super courageous guy, and he's... It's a say the least. And he has witnessed PTSD... Far more closely than I have, but he's used this phrase "crisis of connection," crisis, which I think okay. is a really important thing. And he's written about it. And one of the things he talks about is what our old familial institutions look like when we had multiple gener- multiple generations living together, care providing. So uncles, aunts, grandmothers, and so our family structures have changed. So our our care for each other has changed. Yeah. But so with PTSD, there's a crisis of connection because you you isolate, you withdraw, you distrust people. Um, but community can help keep you on point, can keep you uh, reminded of what you need to do and reminded of your worth, remind you yeah, that you yeah. don't have to be ashamed, embarrassed, that um, help mitigate the negative effects of stigma. So community is, is a real key. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone has that, and especially mm-hmm. if you've been acting out as a result of... Yeah, you know, you're, actually, your, your, your actions have pushed people away, which is very common. Very common. And yeah. then you compound it with perhaps a comorbidity with uh, substance abuse, and yeah. you've now, now you're been in and out of rehab or you've stolen money, you know, you've done things to, to get through your, you know, your addiction. Um, it's a big challenge. It's, yeah. you know, it's easier Burn said than done bridges. to say, yeah. yeah. So to say to restore your community, but it really takes that. It really, it's not something can, that can be done alone. Um, but I also think that non cynically that people do forgive and that communities yeah. will come together or you find new communities that and, it's and, something that's fluid and that can change. And that, mm-hmm. that you know, so to focus on that. People hope. understand the root causes they can find ways to forgive and find ways to try to help. And, and, and I mean, awareness is a key word that I'm going to go back to a couple of times if we conclude the talk. But um, while the film is, it, it, it's tough at times and, and, and it's powerful in this way, there, there's such a spirit in it and in all the subjects. Um, and this fashions the film very inspiring and beautiful. And, uh, and at one point, um, Louis says... Uh, you have to fight to be happy, and and I will not go softly. I will not go um, gently into that good night. And uh, 
And I feel that you crafted this film to honor this will and this spirit and uh, to prove that, you know, with helps, life lives can change for the better. As you said, this is this was one of the goals. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and inspired by them, like you said, you know, because it wasn't, you know, none of the outcomes, none of their outcomes were predicted. You know, and would I, when I met Luis, he was holed up in his apartment in Sunset Park, you know, this is before he got in service dog. Would I have guessed he wrote a New York Times bestselling book? That he'd yeah. be an advocate on the road? Uh, you know, kind of see him on stage with Al Franken and David Letterman, the National. No, and that's the yeah. famous stuff. But the, the grinding work he does when he's in community libraries. Yeah. He's written two children's books. Or he's, he wrote, wrote one children's book, and he's got a second one coming out in uh, in June. Um, Are they all involved uh, Tuesday? They, all involved Tuesday, involved and it's a way. Yeah. And so it's, it's brilliant. You know, it's like okay, he's got this memoir about his life that adults read. But who, who needs to be sensitized about mental health and veterans and service dogs and children? So if they're growing up with this normalized, okay, that there's a someone with a disability and a service dog, oh, that's just part of my community. Uh, or there's a veteran, what do they do? Oh, they went, they fought for this country. They come back, i got to think about them in a more sympathetic way. Yeah. Or, you know, they came back and they've changed. But how do they change? Well, you know, they, 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 they look at the world a little differently now. I can accept that in my life. Like, that's a pretty impactful thing to go school to school, library to library to try to you know, sensitize a generation of children, um, that's a very ambitious and a very positive yeah, message. Exactly. I never would have guessed that for Luis. Mm-hmm. And then for Aaron Dina, like, I met her, she was four years sober, I thought she was, she was on her way to graduate, get her GED, yeah, associates. At 40. At like, 40, really like, battling through. Yeah, yeah, just balling out, being like, you know what, I'm going for it, I'm going to be a therapist too. And yeah. then, she took a very, very different route to that. Yeah. I still think she's going to do that. It's going to take a little bit longer. Yeah. But, you know, that's not an outcome I predicted with her at all. Sure. Um, and so, you know, you can't predict the outcomes. But, you know, when they found, when each of these subjects found community, um, it liberated them to to take steps forward in their own recovery yeah. and, and, and re, refine. You know, I guess the other thing that they found were purpose. You know, finding purpose, uh, new purpose. And when you have that to pull you through every day. Why, why did this yeah, happen to me? Yeah, we talked about that a lot, finding, but, finding a reason to propel and yeah. move on. He had the army for so long. It was yeah. mission to mission to mission, and you know, there's a grand institution providing that purpose, yeah. and all of a sudden... Um, yeah, besides all the trauma of war, that fallout from that system, that pushed, you know, like a, a kind of a loose uh, analogy, like a ball player, when they finish, you know, you know their sports career, then like, what's next? So what's next? What's right. Next? What do you do? And then you know, or like, or or you know, to to make the analogy even clearer, is like when you if you left a you know you know a professional league and then they stop you know supporting you and kind of yeah. shunned you a little bit and you know, yeah. forgot about you for a minute, uh, made it harder for you to, to live as a civilian or you know as a non professional. Uh, that kind of institutional betrayal, uh, you're getting over that and oh. then refining a new purpose. And so again, that's. You know, another kind of heroic component of, of Luis is someone is finding new purpose, you know, and his particular purpose is to advocate and educate mm-hmm. um, and, and bring hope. That's a pretty noble, grandiose Absolutely. thing, and he's, and he's pulling it off and yeah. he's executing it. So. Yeah, and you're just seeing how, how difficult it is to get to that point where he was able to give back. It's so admirable. It's really, it's, it really, it's touching. Yeah. really touching. Um, back to you a little bit as a filmmaker. Um, the other... Uh, film of yours that you were involved in that I saw was um, the documentary The Carrier, which uh, that that affected me pretty deeply as well, very deeply. Um, in that, you brought us into um, a remote African uh, Zambian Zambia, yep. yeah, uh, village to show how intensely AIDS AIDS was um, ravaging its, its people, and um, it's 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 incredible how socially conscious your films are. And I, I, I was curious, is there anything? 
you know, else on your mind? I mean, what's 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 next, if you will? I mean, it's it's it's. Um, well, with the, the carrier, you know, I, I work with director Maggie Betts on yeah. that, and uh, you know, she'd worked with the UN quite a bit and UNICEF, um, and so they were partners uh, in helping make that film happen. Yeah, that, um, uh, the access you had to that, that village was pretty intense. Well, right? yeah, that, and that, How long did that documentary take place? We um, we shot, you know, we, you know, we were following um, a pregnant Zambian woman who was HIV positive, yeah. uh, trying to you know employ some of the mother to child prevention measure, measures. Um, that had been put in place in local and rural clinics to, to prevent their child from having, uh, HIV, you know, the HIV transmission being uh, intervened. Um, and so we followed her. We met her probably, you know, when she was three or four months pregnant. And we ca- we came back every month, you know, through her pregnancy and delivery, okay. which we were there for, yeah. Um, yeah. which was wild. Yeah. And then, um, and you know, to really look at, you know, and, and complicated by the fact that she was in a polygamous marriage, um, where the husband was HIV positive uh, and the two other wives were as well. And so looking at how, how to carry on in that, in that world. Um, so yeah, the social issues, you know, so that was Maggie Betts's vision that I came in to help uh, okay. produce. And, you know, we spent, we lived in Zambia for four months mm-hmm. um, making that film. Wow. Um, and you know, what's next? Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure. I mean, yeah, it's I mean been, you're in the thick of this. I'm right in the now. thick of this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that it leads us to me to, you know, the hopes for buried above ground are to have a national broadcast, which looks mm-hmm. very likely uh, June 28th, the day after PTSD awareness uh, day. day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in June is PTSD awareness month, and so we're looking at a, a broadcast with PBS World Channel, um, which we're extreme, extremely great. proud and happy with. Good. Um, so as well as a number. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be you know, and, and PBS is great. It's, it's the most accessible uh, station and platform in the country, both in mobile and on uh, um, and on on television. It's just people yeah. have access to it, um, as well as a number of other distributors that are going to come in to get it on digital platforms mm-hmm. and into community screenings. We're building, you know, robust toolkits for people to host their own screenings of any scale. Um, and, you know, and trying to employ other sponsors to help promote, uh, getting the film into, you know, all kinds of spaces yeah. at any scale. Again, you yeah. know, like if it's a five person screening, that's five more people that are perhaps Very a little cool. more sensitized. If it's a sure. 150 person screening and we've done, events from five people to 250 yeah. um, while doing the film festival routes and being in, in, you know, and working with other mental health advocacy groups to try to, you know, in a really grassroots, you know, conscientious way, community by community, you know, mm-hmm. build, you know, use the film to build a, a conversation uh, around disrupting the crisis of connection that yeah. we see as the kind of uh, most immediate impact any person can have with someone with PTSD or someone in their community with yeah. PTSD, just connect, just yeah. You know, a That's little bit of compassion. Message: If you want, if you want people to walk away from this film, it's it's that that connection, that understanding. The, I mean, yeah, you don't have to be a clinical psychologist. You don't have to prescribe anything. You don't have to be a therapist. Just be available, and yeah. that that is a yeah. huge, huge, well huge um, opportunity. It's something that anyone can do, yeah. uh, and it's not the whole. It's not the complete therapeutic approach, sure. but but man, does it go yeah. a long go a long way to say. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be ashamed. Yeah. I'm here. I, got you. I can listen. I got you. You yeah. know, and so exactly. that's a great start. Something it, like the gift yourself is something almost anyone can give if they're willing. And yeah. but you, have, you but you have to know. You have to have to be aware that this person is. You know, you might not be able to understand the entirety of it. These things are complex. What someone goes through is complex. But to understand, they're hurting. You know, so um, it's. Uh, 
Yeah, like I mean, like uh, Louis says, he's, he states that so many people don't have a cu- uh, clue, both on the battlefield and and in the everyday, and, and, he, and he's so right. And it's remarkable to, to me, and scary to think about how many people are walking around kind of in this shell shock, you know, shook um, state from from these life experiences, and and you just never know what what people are going through or what someone has gone through, and. It's so important to remember this, and, and this is just one of the reasons I think your film is, is so important. And um, knowledge is power, empathy is power, and but more than that, people need help. We need the, we need the word out, and we, and we, we as a society need to do more. So, um, and I think your film really makes this clear, buried, buried above ground, really makes this clear. So, thank you so much for coming here and, uh, and, 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 and talking to me. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate being on here. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Yeah. Across the margin. Across the margin. Podcast.